Thank you, Anna. If you can have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 8, that would be great. And if you don't have a Bible, um, there are Bibles in the back for you. But let's pray as we start. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray that you'll take these words that I've prepared and make it yours. And we pray that only the truth of your word will be spoken and also received. And we just pray that your words will do its work, accomplish its mission in our hearts and our minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Book of Acts was written at the time when Christianity was expanding, when the church was growing at a phenomenal rate. And that stands in great contrast to what's happening in the world right now. Well, in many parts of the world, in the Western world at least. In England, I've seen a church that was, you know, it had a shell of the church, but it was turned into an event hall. And I've seen it with all its glitz, you know, when the events are running, but it was no longer a church. I actually saw a church that was converted into a private house. People lived in that church. In contrast, the early church grew so fast And if you're like me, you're asking yourself, what's the secret? What happened in the early church that the church grew so fast at that time? What what did they do so right that the church grew at that time? And we talk about challenges of pluralism, the idea that there are so many religions that we're competing with right now. Well, that's true of today, but it was also true of the biblical day as well. Back then, they were competing with so many gods that were out there. They were competing with Zeus and, I mean, you name it, they, 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 had, they were there as well. We talk about the challenges of materialism, but, you know, materialism, money, mammon, Jesus talked a lot about money because he had to also compete with money and the power of money at the time. Facing many of the similar threats that we are facing, and many of them, a lot of times more acutely than we had, the church managed to grow in the early church. What was the secret to their success? And wouldn't it be wonderful that we, if we could discover those secrets from the Bible and apply it to our lives, to the lives of the, this church today, and take the gospel to all the corners of the new territories, to Hong Kong and to the ends of the earth. Well, the book of Acts has been teaching us many things about evangelism and outreach and how the church has grown. And I think this chapter, chapter 8, teaches us at least three, three lessons. One, that there is not one secret. That there is not, no one method that works. Number two, that there is no set people that we should be evangelizing. That the gospel brings even the people who have been disqualified in the past. And then also, number three, that there is no coincidence. That everything is happening according to God's will. So let's turn to the first. No set method. The first uh, two, in in college, I spent two summers uh, of my college years selling books door to door. And you've heard some of the stories. Um, Selling books door to door. And if you think that there's any sort of persuasiveness in me, that's because there's a little bit of a salesman in me left. I learned some tricks of the trade. Um, For example, in my sales pitch, I I knew that I needed to create need in people. That that, that was the first thing that I needed to do, to tell people that they need this product, these books that I was selling. 
And this was the day, days before uh, when the internet was really the, the, a, a big and huge thing. So I talked about encyclopedias and how inadequate the encyclopedias are for actual schoolwork, that you needed more than one example in math, that you needed three or four. Um, and I would talk about how the parents, when they wanted to help their kids, um, they, 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 they needed more resource for the parents, not just for the kids, but also for the parents. I was creating need. Another thing that I learned to do was, uh, um, and we call it price anchoring, I found out, that you, know, you, you, you tell them about, so I would start out by saying things like, do you know how, how much encyclopedias these days cost? It costs more than $800. I would start with that, and then I'd go, I'd go, do you know the biology book that I was using for one semester? It would cost $110. And do you know how much this book costs? $40. Bam, you're sold. But just like that. Well, there were tried and true sales methods that I was using. It worked on many people, and they proved successful for many years. And you think, sometimes, you think selling, we think of telling people about Jesus, like evangelism like that, like a sales method, that we think if we just had the right words to say, if we could just figure out the right things to do at the time, then people will come to know Jesus. Well, what was the method that people were using uh, in the early church to bring so many people to Christ. Well, what we find in this chapter, at least, is that there is no one method. There is no one set method. God seems to use all sorts of situations and all sorts of methods, whatever that was available at the time to bring people to Christ. And that's even evident in this chapter. So chapter 8, take a look at verse 1. Um, on that day, the second half of verse 1, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered through, uh, through uh, Judea and Samaria. I remember the anger that the Jewish people had against Stephen and how Stephen was stoned last week. Well, that anger didn't stop at Stephen. They took it out on the church. The church was being persecuted, and everyone, when we're told uh, about it, the church grew to, about, to be about 5,000, everyone except the apostles, who probably felt that it was their, their duty to hold down the fort in Jerusalem, everyone spread from Jerusalem and then to Judea and to Samaria. Everyone. And if you've, you think that you've heard that progression before, you've heard Jerusalem, Judea and to Samaria, that's true, because Jesus told the disciples that when they receive the Holy Spirit, that they will be his witnesses in Acts 1-8 from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was predicted. We're told that the disciples would be missionaries, and here we see God using the persecution to make people inadvertent missionaries. That was God's method of getting people out of their homes to go out to different places to tell people about Jesus. The church grew in Judea and in Samaria, not despite the persecution, but because of the persecution, because people were forced out to go to, the, the, uh, to, to these places. The Spirit led people led this persecution to happen so that, that, that they would be his witnesses in Judea and in Samaria. 
So God uses these terrible circumstances circumstance to, to uh, if you could call it maybe a method of God bringing people, uh, the gospel, to people who haven't heard of the gospel. So, so let's call that the first method. But God uses other methods than accidental, almost accidental evangelism here in this chapter. We're told in verse 5 that actually Philip was quite intentional. He went down um, to Samaria to proclaim the Messiah there. He went down to Samaria. And the method seems to be this, that he would gather people through signs and wonders, through these miracles, and then he would preach an evangelistic sermon. According to verse 6, people were so amazed by what, 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 what Philip was doing, it says in verse 6 that they paid attention to what he was saying. Impure spirits came out, paralyzed and lame were healed. So people gathered, and then uh, Philip stood and talked about Jesus. We're told in verse 12 that he talked about the kingdom of God and the name of Christ. I think all this seems reminiscent of Billy Graham crusades that was happening uh, in the past. If you substitute these signs and wonders to just a general sense of buzz in the air and the media exposure and just uh, people, uh, things coming together to gather a huge number of people, right? That was the method of evangelism back then. They gathered in huge numbers, played music. Billy Graham uh, 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 preached the stirring sermon. And crowd that became Christians, thousands of people gave their lives to Christ. But, so that was a second method, mass evangelism in some ways. But if you think that that was then the method that was discovered, well, that's not the only method uh, that we're told. Uh, We're told another, yet another story of Philip. So a story we just uh, read. He leaves, well, God tells him to leave this successful ministry that's happening in Samaria. People from Samaria are left and right or becoming Christians, but God then tells him to leave this area and go down to the road uh, to Gaza because of one person, the Ethiopian eunuch. And what he does is what we call now these days effectively one-to-one evangelism, one-to-one Bible study. He goes in, he hears of this important official opening up the Bible and hearing the Bible, uh, uh, reading it out loud. He sits next to him, literally, opens up the Bible and explains. Uh, well, he answers his questions and explains this gospel message to him. And the eunuch becomes a Christian too. You see, there are at least three methods of evangelism here. And recently... Um, uh, what we do a lot of times, though, is we read these things and we try to find out the, the, the secret, the, the, the formula, and we try to apply it to our life today. But, and I think we, we see this happening with Alpha Course. Alpha Course has become a big phenomenon around the world, and people have been talking about secrets. What's the secret to Alpha Course? What's, how, how, why is this so successful? Maybe it's the dinner. Maybe it's the dinner that, that creates this atmosphere where people can just banter and ask questions in an informal atmosphere. Maybe it's the, the, uh, Nick Gumbel's charisma, Nicky Gumbel's uh, charisma when he speaks. It's just the stories that he tells. It's so effective way of communicating. 
Well, we, t- we talked about that in the past as well when Billy Graham crusades were happening, right? We, we talked about maybe it was his style of preaching. Maybe it's, I mean, I, I don't know. We, we, we always try to find a formula that works, a method that works, and we try to duplicate that. But what we see in the Bible is that actually that there is no one formula. There is no one, two, three formula that works. What we see is that God uses whatever the circumstance, whatever the method that's available at the time, and he uses that to bring the gospel to the end of the world. We see that God was using even the persecution of the church to make people missionaries to Judea and to Samaria. When we see uh, Billy, well, Billy Graham was asked, what was the success to his evangelist, what was the uh, what, what was the secret to, uh, to his to his evangelistic success? He didn't talk about his um, style of speaking or music that was played. He just simply said, "Well, th- he was speaking to a bunch of pastors." He said, "Spend more time in study and prayer." What he really said was, "Depend on God, know who God is, and pray and depend on God as you do your ministry." When we do that, God uses whatever method. When we're close to God and when we know God and when we're prayerful and when we depend on God, God uses whatever the method that's around to bring people to Christ. Well, some of you are asking, does this mean then that we don't have to strategize? Um, when we, uh, we don't have to run these courses and study up on what's going on in the culture and what's happening in our, our colleagues' lives. Um, uh, we don't have to give any thought to evangelism. Well, that's not what, exactly what I'm saying. Actually, it's okay to strategize, and actually it's necessary, and we see that happening in the Bible as well. For example, uh, Paul was sent specifically out to reach uh, a, a population that, that, that was not being reached. We also see the disciples, or the early church, going into big cities, because that's where the people were. That's where the movers and shakers were. That's where, where the culture makers were at the time in the early church. They went specifically to these cities and not to the rural, rural areas because that was the strategy of the early church. Paul seemed to have gone to synagogues at first because he had good reasons of doing so. But I guess what I'm saying is, I mean, do think about how you're going to talk to your colleagues. Do think about... Um, what, what the most effective way of doing ministry and evangelism, mission work is, but do not put your hope on those methods. Do not set your hope on that. Don't be frustrated when the things that the, you have planned do not work. You know, I've sat, I've done this one-to-one work with many people, many non-Christians. Some of them become Christians and some of them don't. Um, we've done. We've run Alpha course here. We will run Christianity Explored in the future. Alpha course in the future as well. Some of them will become Christians, and some of them will want, uh, won't. We'll run a uh, 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 guest Sunday, and we'll treat, uh, preach a guest uh, Sunday sermon to, uh, to, to the guests that you bring. Some of them will become Christians, and some of them won't. You will think about. Uh, how you can speak to your colleague. Maybe you've, you're, making, you're doing nice things to them, um, and, and you, you're strategizing about how I can speak uh, the gospel to your colleagues. Some of them will hear the gospel when we become Christians, and some of them will not. 
God will use the best of your planning, but God will use also the worst of the situations as well to bring uh, people, everyone, to himself. God will use all means and all situations to bring glory to his name. So don't look, don't, don't wait to think. Um, don't, don't, don't look for a perfect secret formula in evangelism. Really, if there is any secret, it's speaking. Speaking Jesus in whatever the circumstances that you're in. So one, no set method. Secondly, we're given um, the fact that we should be preach. We should be preaching the gospel to everyone everyone around us, because no one is disqualified from receiving the gospel. Once again, so when I was selling books door to door, I thought, when I was a rookie, that I thought it would be the rich people and the nice people who would buy books. Well, rich people actually were very good at shutting the door on on the salesman. And the nice people were really nice. They were good at giving me maybe a glass of water, but they weren't, they didn't buy more books than other people. And in time, I learned, to, I, I learned to not to sort of disqualify, discount, discount anyone out as I was going um, uh, through these, uh, uh, these neighborhoods. Towards the end, I started selling books to everyone because everyone bought books. And what we see in this chapter, in chapter 8, is also the gospel reaching all sorts of people who had various disqualifications, who should have been left out, who should not have accepted the gospel. For example, as many of you know, Samaria is not a place that Jewish people frequented. I'm not going to go into all the details of why this was the the case, but Samaritans were half-breeds, sort of mix of Jewish people and Gentile blood. This is and, and this is, um, Samaritans were historic enemies. It's a bit like, if you think about maybe Chinese people marrying Japanese people in the 1950s, well, it was that, that sort of situation there. They were enemies, um, and they did, not have, they did not want to do anything to do with uh, Jewish people and vice versa. Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament except the first five books, the Pentateuch, their help, they offered to help in building uh, the, the temple, but their help was rejected. And so Samaritans then said, fine, we'll build our own temple in Mount Gerizim. And that's what they did. So Jewish people did not associate with Samaritans and Samaritans vice versa. The first Jewish Christians, and they're all Jewish at the time, had no reason to think that Samaritans would be open to receiving the gospel. And it's amazing that Philip goes down to Samaria. But what's more amazing is actually their reception, what happens in the city of Samaria. Their response is, um, in verse 8, that they receive the gospel with joy. We're told in verse 8, joy filled that city. You see, they're no longer disqualified. Whatever disqualification that they had, it's, it no longer exists. People who were once enemies are bring, becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. And we didn't read this, uh, this passage, but in verse 9, um, we see, uh, we meet a person that, uh, 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 Philip meets a person um, named Simon, Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer. Well, people called him the great power of God. And Leviticus, Leviticus 
gives death penalty uh, for sorcerers, Leviticus chapter 20, 27. And the Deuteronomy 28 tells the Israelites not to associate with uh, people who practice sorcery. But the story makes it clear that even Simon the magician, if he had accepted Christ, he could, he too could become a brother in Christ. And the story that we read, the Ethiopian eunuch is another person who would have been disqualified from receiving the gospel before. He was most likely a black African, Gentile, wealthy, highly educated, but we're told that he was also eunuch. What we're told in verse 27 is that he went to Jerusalem to worship God. But what we're not told is that he probably was turned away. He was probably turned away because eunuchs, Deuteronomy 23.1 says, eunuchs cannot worship in the temple. He's disqualified from worshiping God. And it is to this man that Philip is sent to sit next to, one to one. And as we see in detail in, in a few seconds, he's reading Isaiah. In Isaiah 56, Isaiah prophesied of a day when, um, when the eunuchs could also worship in the temple. Isaiah 56, 4 and 5 says that they will receive a name, even eunuchs will receive a name better than son and daughter. That they would not be cut off from worshiping in the temple. No more disqualifications. No one is out. No one is disqualified from receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. All can be forgiven, and all can be included in the family of God, and all can know Christ Jesus, and when they do, all can receive the Holy Spirit. So, preach the gospel to everyone around you. When I lived in Honduras, there was one Sunday morning when um, a woman who worked as a prostitute in in the town um, entered the church. She came in before the service. She came in and she knelt in her seat and she prayed for a while, but she didn't stay for the service. And how could she? Because everyone was staring at her. Some people were staring at her just blatantly. And like me, um, many people were staring at her at the corner of our, with the corner of our eyes. And it's as if she couldn't bear the weight of this collective sight that we're giving her. She got up and she left uh, before the service began. And I have this regret to this day. I cannot believe that I didn't go up to her and talk to her to welcome her into the church. No one is disqualified before the cross. Everyone is welcome at the cross. And you know many others who think that they're not good enough for the church. They're not good enough for the gospel. They're not good enough to know who God is. You know that the reason why they don't come to church is just because they have disqualified themselves from coming into the church. Samaritans, sorcerers, eunuchs, Gentiles, Greeks, Germans, Chinese, rich, poor, educated, not educated, Really good people, really bad people. Gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. But I don't have to talk about prostitutes to, to think of people who disqualify themselves. You know, many of you, many of you here, there are times in your life when you think, I'm not worthy. 
I'm not good enough to receive the gospel. I'm not good enough to receive the grace of Christ. But as the saying goes, you really don't have to be good enough. You just really need to be bad enough. Gospel is for people who are bad, and that's all of us. No one is disqualified from receiving the gospel, and so we should be preaching the gospel to everyone around us. We should not be disqualifying anyone in our minds as we carry this good news out into the world. No one is disqualified. But finally, also, there is no coincidence in God's mission. God has been doing this mission work through his spirit. And we saw how those who were being persecuted were persecuted in some ways according to God's plan. God had taken that persecution and was using it. Um, the persecuted preached the, uh, preached the word wherever they went. We also saw in verse 1 how Saul was there at Stephen's, um, Stephen's uh, um, martyrdom as Stephen was getting pelted by stone. That was part of God bringing Saul and making him to Paul, an apostle of Christ. But the fact that there is no coincidence that everything, is hap- everything happens according to God's sovereign plan of bringing everyone to himself is most clearly seen, I think, in the story of eunuch, Philip and the eunuch. It's quite explicit in some ways. One is that it's no accident that Philip goes down and meets this eunuch because in verse 26, he's told to go down and, and meet this eunuch. He's told to go down uh, to, the, to the road in the middle of nowhere, in the desert road to Gaza. Now, count the ways that God has been working to make this happen in this story. First, what Philip finds when he goes down is that he finds this person um, who, who is a God-fearer, probably a God-fearer, person who, who, who has heard of Yahweh, and he wants to find out more about why, or who this God is, and he wants, to be, he wants to worship him. Already, God has been working in this person's life in the past, when Philip finds him there. And the Spirit speaks to him in verse 29, to go next to the chariot. And by the way, this would have been probably easy to do because it was a chariot probably drawn by, by, by an ox, uh, not, not a galloping horse. Um, and Philip hears the Ethiopian reading out loud, and that's how people read back then, and that's not surprising. But out of all the books that he could have been reading, he re- he's reading the Bible. But the Bible is a big book. There are many ways that you could be, um, I don't know, Never mind. <laughs> All kinds of ways maybe that's not helpful um, in, um, there. But he's reading the book of Prophet Isaiah, a book that is filled with prophecies about the Messiah. And he's reading, um, in Isaiah even, half of it is, about a third of it is prophecy, prophecy of doom, isn't it? Many, how many things will just go wrong. But that's not the section that he's reading. He's reading Isaiah 53. And if you don't know what Isaiah 53 is about, you should go home and read it because it is a chapter that tells us about Jesus. How Jesus, this, the servant, was despised and rejected 
by men, a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering, a person who was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, punished so he could bring peace. In short, I mean, this is about as explicit as it gets without mentioning the name of Jesus. And the passage that he's reading as Philip approaches is Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. How he died in humiliation. How he didn't open his mouth to curse the people, uh, people who was punishing him. And the question that was on the eunuch's mind was, who is this person? Who is this person? Who is this servant who is suffering? Verse 34. Tell me, please. Who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? That's not an accident, is it? God has been working in this person's life to prepare him. He's prepared every single thing about this encounter. Nothing was happening by accident. And so Philip began with that passage, Isaiah 53, and opened up the Bible and told him about the good news of Jesus. And here's the thing, a final thing. By the time Philip is done explaining, they run across this pond, these waters. And the guy says, oh, here's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? That's not a coincidence, is it? This is desert road. (laughs) But when it's done, they come across this water. And the guy asks, well, I should be baptized now. Well, you know, in this instance, God made it obvious that spirit has been at work at every point of his life. But, you know, it's not always this obvious. It wasn't so obvious that Stephen, when Stephen was dying, that this was part of God's will. It wasn't so obvious when the persecution broke out in Jerusalem that that was part of God's sovereign plan of bringing the gospel to Judea and to Samaria. Plenty things are not obvious to us, but that doesn't mean that it's not part of God's sovereign plan. They are. There is no coincidence in the spirit-driven mission. God uses all circumstances, every situation, everything that is happening to reach people. Where you live, where you work, who you work with, the situation that you are in, the difficulties that you might be having at the moment, who your friends are, what you're studying, where you're going on holiday next week, why you're here visiting Hong Kong right now. A part of that reason might be that God wants to reach people who's next to you. And if you are waiting for some secret moment or secret method, book, secret resource, the right resource to use to talk to your friends about Jesus, I say don't wait. There's no such secret, perfect thing that will make it work. God uses all methods and all situations. And if you think that your friend is just too bad, he's been a historic enemy of the church, a defender of atheism, well, Samaritans were like that too. Don't discount them. And know that everything is happening around you is part of God's sovereign plan. And be confident that that is the case. And declare the name of Christ. Really, if there's any secret to evangelism, it's really speaking of Jesus. His life, his death, and the resurrection. 
in a group setting, in a course, in one-to-one, by the water coolers, just um, when you're having a, your daily conversations um, through online means or whatever it is, there's no secret, one method that works for everybody. God has placed you wherever you are and is giving you opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. Just speak the name of Jesus. And as Philip went down to Samaria, that city was filled with joy. And I just pray that as you go on your holiday or um, in, the, in the coming months and years, um, wherever God has placed you, that you'll be speaking the name of Jesus. And wherever you are, the groups of friends, school where you're at, the workplace that you're at, will be filled with joy, the joy of knowing Jesus. Amen.